Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump called for unity but didn't budge on key issues last night in his State of the Union address. With me to talk about the foreign policy aspects of last night's address is Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Good to talk with you, Steve. Always great to be with you, Jerome. When you look at the speech in print, by far the largest section was about the wall. And he did almost all his usual stuff last night about the wall, but uh, did not invoke a national emergency. Skirt Congress, he didn't threaten it. Um, what did you make of all that? Well, I think he could have uh, called a national emergency if he, if he thought he could have gotten away with it. Uh, but I think Mitch McConnell gave him indication that it might split the GOP caucus and he wouldn't have the support to do that, that he had been advised by others that it might uh, litigate it. But you're right. Uh, we were all waiting for that national emergency and that uh, statement, that declaration didn't come. That said, he still warned uh, the public and the Congress that Congress had 10 days to pass this bill. So I sort of felt there was a fist in a velvet glove there uh, for a moment, reminding them that all of this could come could come to an end. Uh, and then he linked discussion of the wall. He seemed to be more flexible in discussing it than he'd been in the past, talking about it, a see-through barrier um, that might not necessarily extend everywhere, but would be prioritized where, you know, border patrols thought it was most useful. That's a different kind of language, potentially a more flexible language um, than Donald Trump has used in the past. So you're right that he didn't go all the way, uh, but he certainly didn't give back um, much ground um, on this debate about about a border wall. And from what I understand, he's going to El Paso next week, and he mentioned El Paso as a place that was uh, terrible uh, before they built a wall there and now is safe, and people were disputing that. Uh, the mayor of El Paso was disputing that. It just seems like this thing is going to keep going. Well, this has been, been one of the big things about the Trump speech that's gotten a lot of attention is his maligning of El Paso and crime rates, uh, if you will. Um, El Pasans are standing up and saying, you know, before they had that that barrier and wall, uh, crime was actually a bit lower, that, that, that the real facts don't correlate with the story that the president shared. Uh, and in fact, from where crime used to be, it's dramatically lower um, than in the older days. So there's been a lot of fact checking of the president on this, um, you know, as, 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 as usual exercise. Uh, and and he may be going down there. Nonetheless, he did point to uh, families in the in the gallery, as presidents are prone to do during states of the union, uh, and shared horrific tales and, and stories of of, of a uh, young uh, young folks whose grandparents were killed by a, an illegal immigrant. And and that's kind of part of the process is that one can grab an incident and try to uh, uh, generalize that across the population. But the facts don't don't show, in fact, that the crime rate uh, is in any way tied to the um, a decrease in crime rate is not uh, tied to that wall in El Paso. I'm talking with Steve Clemens from The Atlantic, and we're discussing last night's State of the Union address. And I wanted to play what I think was probably the, the strangest line and it got the strangest reaction of all. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. 
All right. Uh, Steve Clements, what did you make of that line where he, he, he calls on uh, Congress, the Democrats, not to investigate his administration? Well, it reminds, you know, in, in uh, 45 years ago, President Richard Nixon in his State of the Union uh, speech uh, made a similar appeal that this Watergate investigation back then had to end. It didn't go so well for Nixon. Um, that said, you know, if you listen to the tape that you had just a little bit longer uh, what was interesting is that neither side really applauded that war and investigation line. It was one of the uh, flops, if you will, or one of the unembraced uh, moments in the Trump speech. I found that very interesting. I wanted to um, dwell on the investigations moment here. Um, what do the Democrats have up their sleeves right now? Because there's a, a large number of investigations that uh, – could take place? Uh, is, is there one that you're hearing is larger scale than others? Well, I think that there's a whole slew of things that are unfolding. One uh, that we're watching is what happens over Donald Trump's taxes. And the Congress will um, no doubt at, at some point subpoena uh, those taxes and call for their, their um, you know, to, to look at them. And I think that that the White House is going to stop that, but it's going to remind the American public that this president has not done what most presidents do uh, and and to show their taxes and their sources of income uh, that some suspect may show uh, links potentially to a past uh, dependent upon Russian financing for various real estate properties. But we don't know. That's speculation. I think the other dimension to this is um, at some point, and we keep hearing soon, 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 uh, the Mueller investigation is going to issue a report. As part of that process, as we get closer and closer to the end, uh, and as you and I have discussed, I felt there would be larger shoes to drop. One of those was Roger Stone. It's very hard for me to see how a number of other people aren't caught in the snare, very high-profile names, very close to the president uh, before that, that closes. So that's another dimension um, that we're looking uh, at, I think, broadly here in Washington. So those are two fronts, but I think the taxes and, and you know, what, what uh, where Russia uh, points. And then I think there's going to be a broader thing down the road, which is to look at um, other kinds of cronyism around the president that may have occurred. And I think the one that's broken most recently, uh, which I find fascinating, is the inaugural committee. You know, last night we were, you know, there was a lot of fuss where where various um, senators, and I have to say it happened on both sides, both the, the White House uh, put out a note um, or the, the Republican Party put out a note saying uh, that it would stream the names of donors to the to the uh, Republican Party over the president's State of the Union address. But then Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, also said, hey, uh, uh, you know, here we are. And she took a clip of her on the floor uh, and said, make a $5 donation. So more of that. But but I think using things like the inaugural as ways to line the pockets of various players is something that the um, that the investigators in the House of Representatives are going to be looking at. And I'm, I'm very interested in the Trump inaugural committee because very wide um, uh, subpoena uh, has been issued calling on a great number of of players in that investigation. I got to admit, the inauguration seems like an odd place for political corruption. It seems like such an obvious thing to look. You know, you would never do it that way if you had money any. than virtually anyone, and did far less. So there's an indication: the far fewer parties, half the parties, and double the money that. Uh, that say Obama raised or or George W. Bush raised, and so it became a money pot. And the question is, where did all that go uh, on on so little? And certainly, uh, they didn't get you know not to not to you know 
poke on the crowds issue, but certainly, you know, in terms of those who attended, it was not the best attended uh, inauguration. So there was a lot of money raised. And I think there are legitimate questions raised. You know, Tom Barrack, uh, a friend of the president, was in charge of that affair. And we have to see what happened with those with that, those distributed monies. I'm talking with Steve Clemens about the State of the Union address last night. Steve Clemens is with The Atlantic, and I wanted to play another clip. Uh, And this one is where he derides socialism. And before this, he was talking about Venezuela, and a lot of uh, Republicans end up talking about uh, Venezuela as the bad example of socialism. And uh, certainly in his speech last night, he juxtaposed these two. Here in the United States... We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination and control. We are born free and we will stay free. Uh, interesting moment there, government coercion and control. And um, I, I think this is going to be something we're going to see a lot of in the presidential campaign. Socialists of the world unite, I guess. Um, it was an odd moment. And, and I don't know if he was looking at Alexandria Octavia Cortez, one of the youngest new members of the House, who, who uh, uh, says she's a socialist, but you know certainly has a lot of Twitter followers. But certainly there is not a rampant um, drive or or... Uh, urgency over questions of socialism, but it does sound like, you know, again, the creation of a potential fake debate for the presidential election. I think, uh, as you mentioned, linking it to the politics of Venezuela is kind of weird. I think anyone who knows Latin America can look at many other regimes that have been socialist in character, center-left slash socialist in Brazil and Chile and others in, in Latin America. Uh, and have not become Venezuela. So it is, a you know, again, another illusion that, that I think smart analysts will pick apart. But clearly, Donald Trump is seducing his followers into a new battle territory uh, over you know, maybe capitalism versus socialism. And this will be some of what we see um, unroll uh, over the next 20 months. Also in the weird juxtaposition category, we had... Uh the president talking about Iran, and he went on for some time. My administration has acted decisively to confront the world's leading state sponsor of terror, the radical regime in Iran. It is a radical regime. And he talked about their anti-Semitism and death to America and threats to genocide against the Jewish people. We will not avert our eyes from a regime that chants death to America and threatens genocide against the Jewish people. We must never ignore the vile poison of anti-Semitism or those who spread its venomous creed. With one voice, we must confront this hatred anywhere and everywhere it occurs. Just months ago, 11 Jewish Americans were viciously murdered in an anti-Semitic attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And then he went right into the anti-Semitism of the killer of the Tree of Life Synagogue as if this was related to Iranian anti-Semitism. 
this is unusual because that was a white nationalist who was probably uh, inspired more by white nationalism in this country than than anything that Iran does. No, I think it was clustering images. And, you know, the, the president is playing to some degree with the ignorance that, that people unintentionally have, perhaps not purposely have, about what drove that incident, that horrible incident, the Tree of Life incident in Pittsburgh, uh, and then to co-mingle that with Iran and Iran calling for you know, a genocidal extermination of Israel. It's commingling things that don't fit together. Um, but it is a, a technique that he uses um, to, to basically fearmonger uh, and, and to create uh, causality where there is none. And, and again, when I was listening to that last night, I remember that one of the things that drove this white nationalist murderer in, in Pittsburgh was the work that this synagogue was doing to support refugees. Uh, and the president didn't want to share that part of the story uh, because the president, despite saying in his speech last night that he would love lots of legal immigrants, uh, he certainly hasn't been uh, supportive of a process that would humanely treat uh, refugees and those trying to escape the horrors in their own countries. I wanted to ask a question about uh, the president's defense of his withdrawal of troops from Syria and Afghanistan. Nearly 7,000 American heroes have given their lives. More than 52,000 Americans in Afghanistan and Iraq. Nearly 7,000 American heroes have given their lives. More than 52,000 Americans have been badly wounded. We have spent more than $7 trillion in fighting wars in the Middle East. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. How do you think that fell on the ears of Congress? Uh, that was one of the lines that got... Um a lot of applause in in the room, even from Nancy Pelosi. Uh, there is a fatigue in the country with places like Afghanistan, and I think those who may not like how the president is pulling out of these places, but it's a legitimate question to ask about how long uh, the American presence should be established in some of these faraway uh, spots. And and it's one of the you know controversies we we learned yesterday that General Votel, uh, the the commander of Central Command, uh, was not consulted before the president's uh, Syria uh, decision to pull out troops there, and and you see this disconnect in some degrees. But nonetheless, you saw that chamber applaud that line because I think many feel that those strategic commitments of the United States are without end, are without definition. And to some degree are without a sense of purpose uh, anymore. And Donald Trump was able to get support from across both parties last night. Steve Clemens is Washington editor at large for The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about President Trump's State of the Union address. My pleasure, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how energy independence turned into energy dominance. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the biggest applause lines last night at the State of the Union address was Congress's enthusiastic support of U.S. fossil fuel production. We have unleashed a revolution in American energy. The United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. The U.S. has long pursued something referred to as energy independence. Now the Trump administration is intent on achieving what it calls energy dominance. With me is Antonia Yuhas. She's an energy analyst and author. Recently in the Los Angeles Times, she wrote about Trump's pursuit of energy. American energy dominance threatens the entire planet. Thanks for joining me, Antonia. Thanks for having me. Good morning or good afternoon where you are. Well, what do you think anyone has told Congress about climate change? Um, Yeah, people have told Congress about climate change. And in fact, um, the majority, vast majority of the American public, including now the majority of Republicans, not only are are sure that climate change is a real phenomena, but are demanding action on the climate from their elected officials. Uh, That that message hasn't gotten to... um, to Trump, apparently. I noticed that the Natural Resources Committee in the House is going to hold the first congressional hearings on climate change in a decade, starting on uh, Wednesday, February 6th. That's today. Yeah, so this is a big issue, um, particularly for Democrats, is taking on climate change um, and using their power in the House in particular to do investigations and to take action on policy. And Um, That is really being led from um, a drafting policy um, perspective by Congresswoman Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez and now being joined in the Senate by Senator Markey. And they're preparing to release as early as this week their um, resolution for a Green New Deal shifting the the United States to 100 percent renewable energy. Well, what do you make of that attempt in light of the enthusiastic response that it, that oil and natural gas development in the United States gets from a, a lot of members of Congress there? It seems, I mean, I know, know they've got 60 people signed up on the Green New Deal already, but um, it seems like most of them are cheering like crazy for oil. Yeah, certainly um, there continues to be a very large constituency supporting the oil industry in the U.S. Congress and uh, certainly in the administration um, with President Trump. So President Trump has uh, fundamentally shifted U.S. policy orientation um, for fossil fuels, shifting from what has been since the 1970s a focus on achieving what's what was referred to as American energy independence, the idea of no longer being the U.S. being dependent on the imports of uh, foreign sources of energy to what Trump has now declared and is moving towards, which is what he calls American energy dominance. And that is an idea that the United States would be such a massive producer, particularly of oil, but also natural gas, also of coal, um, that we would um, become the dominant player and and the swing producer in the world. And some within his administration see that as a, an attempt to supersede that role that Saudi Arabia currently holds and have the United States take it over. And I, I would 
and, and that that line got um, a lot of applause, uh, as you say. The president then also said that the declared that the United States was a net uh, a net energy exporter, which is incorrect. And it's important to clarify this point. First, we're not a net exporter. That's I think based on a prediction that the Department of Energy um, recently released that by 2020, we might be a net energy exporter. But it's a misleading line in addition to being false, because I think it leads people to believe that that means we don't import foreign oil. And that's just not correct. Of foreign energy, the United States is actually increasing its imports of oil. It's increasing imports of natural gas. It's even still importing coal at the same time as we're significantly increasing our exports of all of those products too. Basically under Trump, we are dramatic, we are in- increasingly tying our economy to fossil fuels by producing more, by exporting more, and still importing um, significant quantities and actually having that um, on the uptick. So it's really a, a full dive into fossil fuels uh, in every way possible um, that that the administration is is pursuing and in many ways achieving. Yeah, it's interesting that it's always uh, veiled with these terms that can mean anything to anybody. Energy independence or energy dominance can mean you know, like a lot of renewable energy. A lot of people who like renewable energy probably hear energy independence and think, well, we're developing multiple sources of energy and we're going to achieve energy independence, or it can mean to an oil man, we're going to drill like crazy and we're going to have more oil than ever, and it's all the same. Yeah, I mean, I think clearly the, the Trump administration's interest is is definitely not of one in renewable energy. Um, and I do think that um, part of, so part of the agenda has been to pursue this idea of, of, of um, American uh, dominance, but I actually think that what the Trump administration is genuinely pursuing is wanting to maintain oil in particular and fossil fuels secondarily as the world's dominant energy source to really stamp down upon the attempts to shift away from these fuels. And in that effort, Trump has aligned himself very clearly with the governments of Russia and the governments of Saudi Arabia to form a troika of governments that really uh, debuted their desire to work together at the most recent climate negotiations in Poland, where those three nations joined together to um, not uh, uh, to to disinvite a, a, a critical report that the UN had had looked at of what the implications would be of um, the. Uh, rise in global temperatures going greater than 1.5 degrees Celsius per year above pre-industrial levels. And the UN had conducted this report and it showed a devastating impact of that rise and that we only had 12 years to stabilize uh, the, the annual warming of the planet. And if we didn't, it would be far worse of the impacts we're currently seeing. And that includes, I would add, forced mass migration and immigration of people having to move and leave countries that are suffering the severe impacts of climate change. And the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia joined together to say, we don't even want to look at that. And they also joined together in really making this an incredibly unsuccessful coming together of parties um, at the United Nations and pushing the world back 
um, backwards in its efforts to try to take on climate change. And I believe that that is part of their goal of keeping us as a world committed to these fuels. And Trump is certainly doing the best that he can to keep the U.S. economy um, dependent on these fuels. I'm talking with Antonia Juhas, an energy analyst and author, and we're talking about what's going on with fossil fuels in the United States. And just just to underline the um, ideas about Russia there and what you were saying, I noticed that Russia was uh, going, you know, it seems like the Saudis are floating an idea to bring Russia uh, an associate membership in OPEC, and this would allow them in the door and allow the Saudis and uh, Russia to really dominate in OPEC. The, the Iranians don't like it, of course, but uh, the, the, that would be um, kind of along the lines of what you're thinking. Yeah, it's, it's really a, a really significant shift that happened because of this in, increase in U.S. production. And U.S. oil production had been has been increasing since uh, the Bush, the first sorry, the second Bush administration since 2000, there was a a shift within the Obama administration in 2015 and 2016. There was a stabilization of production. And I believe that was the result of new regulations being put in place that started putting new restrictions on this industry. And that stabilization uh, was completely shifted with the Trump administration where production has increased dramatically. And because of that dramatic increase in production, the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia, I think probably for the first time in, I don't know, maybe 60 years, 70 years, are producing more oil than all of the nations of OPEC combined, which means that these three countries really are the absolute dominant, particularly if they work together, um, the dominant um, power brokers on oil moving forward. And that really has potentially dramatic impacts for foreign policy, foreign policy decisions, particularly, as I said, with Trump so aligned in his um, activities with Russia and Saudi Arabia, um, and also for our con- potential continued uh, uh, use and dependence on these fuels moving forward when we should really be moving in the opposite direction. I noticed that last night in the State of the Union address, two of the countries that were really bad guys were Iran and Venezuela. When you look at that, do you see any, is there any common theme there? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as um, I will say, I will highlight the importance of oil in almost everything that I look at. But I will also always say that oil is almost never the only driver, particularly in foreign policy decisions, although it's something that we um, under underappreciate at our at our own um, uh, failure, because in in Venezuela and in Iran, I would say, you know, key among the decisions of the U.S. government is uh, oil interests and the role of oil in both of those countries. So going after making sure that U.S. oil companies have access to that oil, but also um, by denying the power that that oil gives to a government that we've decided we don't like for lots of reasons. And that's certainly the case in Iran, trying to deny the government of Iran the power of its oil. And the same is true right now for Venezuela. Um, I believe that there are lots of issues that are at play with the desire to remove Maduro. But I think that this administration, particularly being led by John Bolton, um, is is actively engaged in 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 threatening to have troops go into Venezuela. And one of the one of the key motivators is certainly 
regaining access to oil uh, and control of that oil for U.S. oil companies in a way that has been lost uh, dramatically, first under Chavez and then even more so under Maduro. And I think key looking at that is ExxonMobil. So ExxonMobil um, has discovered 5 billion barrels of oil, which is a lot of oil, uh, in Guyana, which is in disputed area um, that Venezuela claims as its area and Guyana claims as its area. And uh, Maduro sent warships to stop Exxon from going after that oil at the, uh, at the end of 2018. Um, and Exxon would really like to get at that 5 billion barrels of oil, and it really needs a different government in Venezuela to do that. And the um, uh, potentially now incoming uh, uh, new president of Venezuela has already um, stated that he will um, increase access to foreign oil companies to Venezuela's oil to reduce the nationalizations that took place. Um, It's been reported that he uh, partnered with the Trump administration in the decision to put in place U.S. sanctions on Venezuelan oil to try to uh, force Maduro to um, leave office. So oil is definitely um, a a piece of what's going on here. And, you know, it was the Bush administration's agenda all along after the invasion of Iraq, which I would certainly argue is one uh, where oil played an enormous role to go to Iran next. And having Bolton in the Trump administration is one of the reasons why um, our hostilities towards Iran have only increased and the politics of oil are definitely at play there as well. Well, you know, when you hear you talk about this, it sounds like the powerful oil interests all over the world are consolidating and getting more powerful and pursuing their interests um, almost without any uh, breaks on the system. Um, is something like the Green New Deal got enough firepower to to stop, you know, this enormous appetite and push of the oil consolidators? I think the reason why you're seeing um, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States coalesce, it, which are three countries that don't often um, uh, see eye to eye on on everything, uh, is because they're under threat. So there is a global movement that is aggressively trying to move in the opposite direction, which is to shift to renewable energy, which is also to shift uh, as well against plastics, which is one of the places where the oil industry sees its future is in producing natural gas and oil to convert into the um, uh, uh, components that create that are turned into plastic. And so to really shift away from these fuels in every in every sense to save our climate and to save our health and to, to uh, create um, greater environmental justice as well. And because they're so under threat is the reason why they are coalescing. Um, and I think that the Obama administration uh, sca- also scared, I think, the industry, oil industry uh, in a lot of ways. And with the Trump administration, there is this sense, I think, that the Oil industry is 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 like uh, are like kids in the candy shop. Get everything they can now while they've got this administration in, because the next one might not be quite so friendly. And certainly, the mood of the American public and the mood of the public globally is is a, moving against uh, very strongly against these uh, against fossil fuels. And I think the Green New Deal 
is an excellent example of a model. You know, the United States uh, consumes an enormous amount of fossil fuels. We produce an enormous amount of CO2 and pollution. We drive international policy that stops uh, progress being made on climate change, or we have uh, with this administration. And the United States embracing something like the Green New Deal or the Green New Deal is could not only be dramatic for the United States, but send a very strong message about what's possible for this um, transition. And to do it in a nation like the United States, where we don't have to be as dependent on fossil fuels as we are, our economy doesn't need to be. Um, and we have the capacity to switch without it being... Um, an enormous shock to our system, whereas other countries that are far more dependent on oil can't make that switch as easily. And it is um, beholden on a nation such as ours that has the resources, has the alternatives um, to make the switch possible to start doing it and to do it in a very thoughtful, managed way that looks at the impact on workers uh, who work uh, in this sector and communities that are dependent on it. Antonia Yuhas is an energy analyst and author. Her recent article in the Los Angeles Times is Trump's pursuit of American energy dominance threatens the entire planet. She is the author most recently of Black Tide, the devastating impact of o- the Gulf oil spill. Thanks a lot for joining us, Antonia Yuhas, and talking about fossil fuels and last night's State of the Union. Well, thanks so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international international music, and we'll talk with an artist who's shaking things up from Bronzeville. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. With me is music and culture writer Catalina Maria Johnson. She hosts Beat Latino on Vocalo. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. And wow, do we have a treat for the listeners. I am really excited about our guest today, uh, Angel Batavid. She is making a global rumble with her new album, The Oracle and the Art Movement that's emerging in Bronzeville. Uh, intri- how did you find out about her? Well, uh, it was interesting. Through an article um, uh, that'll be coming out in Downbeat, and I was just blown away. We have such a rich uh, new music, experimental music, avant-garde music scene here in Chicago, and I'm just beginning to discover it. And I think Angel Batavid is right at the... uh, top of my list of, of artists. Uh, hi, Angel. <laughs> hi. Hey, guys. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having me. I was reading about you in The Reader. There's a great profile of you in The Reader. And uh, your history and coming to music is uh, fascinating. Uh, t- tell us about how you got to this place where, where you're releasing albums and the whole bit. Uh, just you know, the creative journey is something so deep. Ever since my childhood, I've always loved music and the arts have been involved. Um, started uh, piano lessons at 12 and clarinet a little shortly after that. So I just always played music, went to school for it. What a journey. I, you know, I didn't expect it to be this way. I knew I was going to do music, but I didn't know that it would look like this. But you were how old when you decided to devote yourself full time to music? Oh, very young. My, my father, one time he came, he was like, 
he took me and my sister to the couch. They said, all right, you guys, I think we must have been like six or seven. What are you guys going to do with your life? We're like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know. And I felt like all this pressure. And my sister's like, I want to be a writer. I was like, dang, how did she come up with something so quick? And I was like thinking about what I wanted to do. And I loved like the movie Amadeus so much because I saw children. I loved musicals and stuff. Like I want, And I thought of Michael Jackson. I was like, I want to be a musician. So I think it was just always in the back of my head. To, to be that. And, and I pursued it. <laughs> and yet, um, y- you also had a childhood in Kenya, and mm-hmm. you come from seven generations of Baptist ministers. <laughs> That's right. And then at some point, you started recording as part of a residency and came up with this amazing, The Oracle is the name of the album, mm-hmm. The Oracle. <laughs> and, uh, and you recorded it all on your iPhone uh, yeah. also, and you're the only... You're except for one mus- other musician in one tune. You are doing it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Did the whole thing. Um, it wasn't because I was trying to make an album. It was more just out of necessity. You know, I wanted I would compose some things and I want to hear it. And then I would also have rehearsals with people and it kind of streamlined things. If people hear it, then I know they'll know the piece. So a lot of tunes were created in that way. Well, let's hear something. What are we going to hear? Let's hear, what shall I tell my children who are black? This is a, a poem by Dr. Margaret Burroughs, who uh, founded the DuSable Museum. She's very, very important to Chicago. And her poetry, her art is just, it impacts us more than we know. So, yeah. That's Angel Bat David from her new album, The Oracle, What Shall I Tell My Children? And uh, the Margaret Burroughs reference, a uh, Bronzeville icon. And mm-hmm. you're doing so much with Bronzeville. You've got a participatory music coalition going on. You're a, you're a multi-instrumentalist. You're a multi-artistic force. You're gonna, you're, 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 there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's, it's just who I am. It sounds all wonderful and grand, but it's really just my whole being, just being myself. I'm not trying to be an artist. I'm just being an angel. 
You know what I mean? Like, and this is what comes out of me. And I'm so appreciative that people, you know, are feeling me, you know. I've been through times in my life where I just felt so alone. And just to, you know, even be here right now doing something so intimate as creating, you know, these songs, I did them by myself. I didn't think they would see the light of day. And to let my personal self come forward and people like, yo, Angel, we love you. You know, that's a reflection of the growth that I've had as a person. It shows that I love myself. You guys are just reflecting the love that I have for me. And I hope that I reflect that back to you. Well, whoever listens to this album, just know that it's just all love. If you are in a place where you don't feel like anyone loves you, I do. I do. And Angel, I know that um, another part of your story has been healing, healing Mm -hmm. a very serious health condition. Mm -hmm. And some of that shines through your Mm -hmm. music. Um, And uh, I know that also all your journeys come, you're talking about reflecting your personal self. And Mm -hmm. I know that you not not just uh, sang and overlaid your own playing and your piano and your clarinet, but you also sampled occasionally from jam sessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and one of them, which is a tune that's just a very special, is I'm Impepo. Impepo, yeah. <laughs> uh, Impepo, that's one of the songs that I actually created for the album. It was, it came out of, I don't know, I was very influenced from my travels to South Africa. There's a great uh, sound of music called Kom music. I know I'm saying it wrong, but it has like this, mm, this visceral mm, to it. And then in Pepo is this incense that um, a lot of the African spirituality traditions over there burn to connect with their ancestors. And I guess this tune, all of that is very South African influenced. I know I'm not going to take credit for playing South African music because I don't know. But whatever I experienced over there rubbed off on me. <laughs> All right. Let's let's hear a little bit of In Pepo. That's Impepo from The Oracle, the new album by Angel Bat David, who is our guest here on Global Notes. I'm here with Catalina Maria Johnson. Boy, that's a great sounding tune. Thanks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a bass clarinet. Ooh, with the bass clarinet. It's like, ooh, is I love that your primary it. instrument? Because you play clarinet all of is, them. Clarinet is my primary instrument. I would say uh, piano second, vocals. You know, it's all spirit-led. But yeah, clarinet I feel the most free with. Like I can play anything on clarinet. It's my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> And 
when I was uh, listening to the album for the first time, I kept thinking, there's like Miles is there, right? (laughs) And then Sun Ra is there. Mm -hmm. And Gospel is there. That's Mm -hmm. what kept coming through. Yeah. That's my whole thing. I'm I'm a, you know, I'm just going with the spirit for sure. Gospel is definitely a heavy influence on me just being born and raised in the church. In the black church Um, But this is all just great black music I mean, I wish, you know, these genres can't really describe what it is This is, you know, I'm a black woman in this existence And this is the creative expression that comes out of me That's what it is It's not jazz, gospel This is my black expression in this paradigm that I'm in right now Post-slavery, post-all of that Post-World Wars, technology era This is what we sound like right now This is what it is Wow, brave and fierce mm. and um, ready. I yeah. don't know, really ready. That's how, how big of an influence was the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians and the, the history of whatever jazz here in Chicago? Huge. I'm not doing anything new. I'm inspired, inspired by the ACM. Um, you know, I discovered them very recently and I was upset about it. I'm like, how do I, now am I just now? You know, and sometimes it just bothers me some bits of black history where it's like, how am I just now finding out? This was like been like 2014 and um, I discovered uh, AACM and all the many amazing musicians that come forth from them. And I read the book by George Lewis about uh, AACM and, uh, it really changed my life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking earlier, and you were talking about Miles Davis mm-hmm. and uh, the the difference between, you have a couple of performances coming up, so yes. I want to make sure to let people know about that. But uh, Thursday and Saturday, mm-hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> At Elastic Arts. Yes. And But yet you were saying there's the album and then there's the live experience. Yeah. Exactly. My father is a really big Miles Davis fan. Like, I've just heard my, anything Miles. He knows everything. And he said Miles would say the re- the record, the recording is just an invitation to the live show. You know, so you're not going to come to the show and see me on stage with my cell phone <laughs> playing all the instruments, y'all. I got a band. I got the Brotherhood. These are my crew. The Brotherhood. Gosh, I don't know if I have time to say all their names. But anyway, they come and see them. These are my homies. They're great musicians. Isaiah Collier, Adam Zanolini, Chris Espinosa, Norman W. Long, Julian Otis, Victor Lee Gibbons. These are my brothers. That's awesome. So, uh, are you playing with different versions of your brothers on Thursday and Saturday? It sounds like you've got a different constellation of people. Yes, uh, we're we're part of a greater web of coalition from the Participatory Music Coalition. We all do music. We're all friends, and I will say that about this scene here in Chicago, we are like family. And I think that's why the avant-garde and experimental um, has a place to really grow. Because if you want to try something different, you have the support of like all these people who be like, "Cool, we with it." What else you need, you know? And um, and that that makes it comfortable to explore stuff. And you even have some jam sessions for non-musicians, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, to, like healing. Yes. So follow you on Facebook. Follow me. That's my virtual business card. Angel <laughs> the Oracle on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm Angel about to read. 
All right, and you can see her at uh, Elastic Arts uh, on Thursday at 9 p.m. And then uh, on Saturday at 9 p.m. as well, Elastic Arts is 3429 West of Versi. And we're going out on We Are Stars. I love this (laughs) tune. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Angel Bat-David, great to have you. And the new album is The Oracle. Here is We Are Stars. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. talk about the idea of over-tourism. It is what it sounds like. Too many people visiting too few places and them getting destroyed. We'll talk about how to prevent that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Char Dastin. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Yeah.